Hey, everyone, and welcome. It's your man, Manny Faces, the producer, audio editor, and host of the multi-award-winning Newsbeat podcast. Today, you're listening to a re-release of perhaps one of our most powerful episodes to date. It's called Hashtag Say Her Name, confronting 400 years of state violence against Black women. And we're publishing it again right now for several important reasons. Firstly, this is an issue that historically and currently doesn't get the attention it deserves. And we hope that by dropping it again now, that even more attention will be paid and that maybe you'll share it with your friends and loved ones and others you think might be interested. Secondly, this episode recently clinched top podcast honors at the 2021 New York Press Club Journalism Awards, a prestigious competition that includes some of the largest and wealthiest news outlets in the country. The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker Magazine, NBC and CBS News, and many others. And we won. So there's that. And finally, we're releasing this critically important episode in coordination with dropping our brand spanking new Substack newsletter. Please check it out and subscribe at newsbeat.substack.com to receive all future Newsbeat podcast episodes directly in your inbox, as well as some special things we got cooking just for you. Now back to say her name. We felt this episode and the stories of the many victims of state violence mentioned within it best encapsulates our mission of highlighting the many voices too often overlooked and even outright disregarded by larger well-financed media conglomerates, aka the mainstream media. Now, as always, you can also subscribe to our award-winning podcast through any app of your choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, whatever you use, you get the drift. Newsbeat, two words. Uh, we hope you are as moved by this episode as we were creating it. We send much love and respect to our guests and to the many voices that they represented. Check out our Substack, subscribe, and help us all together spark some change for the better. Once again, my name is Manny Faces. On behalf of the Newsbeat crew, we thank you for listening, sticking with us. We've got some new stuff coming, so stay tuned. Here's the original episode. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Ugh, I'm sorry. Again, I am Tamika Palmer. I'm Brianna's mother. It's sad that we all have to be here for this, but I don't think that I'm asking for too much. Just justice for her. Just that people know the truth, what happened, that she didn't deserve this, that people are fired for doing this to her. To know Brianna, she was full of life. She loved life, she respect life. This is so much bigger than her, but we can't get justice with violence. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't help. It's, it doesn't help her, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help the world we live in. You can't fight violence with violence. I just demand justice for Brianna. Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, producer and host of award-winning Newsbeat. 
where we strive to illuminate underreported social justice issues through high-level journalism, interviews with experts and activists, mixed with music and original lyrics by brilliant independent hip-hop artists. Now, because we're working our way through the coronavirus pandemic, we're not always able to incorporate our artist family as we have in the past. But these issues can't wait, particularly this one. Alexia Christian, Maya Hall, Gabriela Navarez, Miriam Carey, Chantel Davis, Melissa Williams, Katherine Johnston, Ayanna Stanley Jones, Brianna Taylor. You may not recognize all of those names, but they range in age from 7 to 92. They hail from Brooklyn, Baltimore, Sacramento, Cleveland, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Louisville, and Washington, D.C. They're daughters, mothers, nieces, and sisters. They're cousins, aunties, granddaughters, and grandparents. They're children, students, homemakers, wives, girlfriends, first responders, essential workers, career professionals. They are all loved, and they represent but a tiny fraction of the black women and girls who have been killed by police, yet rarely, if ever, mentioned in conversations about police brutality. Perhaps this is partly due to the sheer number of unarmed black men gunned down or strangled to death by cops throughout the United States, or a lack of collective outrage or even awareness about their plights. The cruel fact is that black women and girls have been the victims of state-sanctioned violence ever since the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th century, a horrific foundation for the legacy of discrimination, abuse, and death that resonates through today. With the Black Lives Matter movement forcing white America to confront its shameful history and present-day reality of inequality and brutality against all black people, it's important such atrocities targeting black women and girls are met with the same fury as expressed against the gruesome police killing of George Floyd and so many other black men. Shedding some much-needed light on all of this for us is Andrea J. Ritchie, an activist, police misconduct attorney, author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and researcher-in-residence at Barnard Center for Research on Women, and Michelle S. Jacobs, professor of law at University of Florida Levin College of Law. This is another episode we wish we didn't have to make. And hopefully, one day, we'll represent only the past and not the present. For now, this is Say Her Name, confronting 400 years of state violence against Black women. Certainly, state-sponsored violence against Black women has existed from the moment the first Black woman was dragged to these shores. Considered as a foremother of the African-American community, historians believe Angelo boarded a ship in Angola before heading to Vera Cruz and finishing her voyage in Jamestown on the James River. She appears in the colony's census documents in 1624 and 1625. She worked for a wealthy family and lived alongside white servants. The women weren't just stuffed into the boats, but of course they were also used as tools of pleasure for the sailors who were on the boats. So not only were they shackled to other human beings in these insufferable conditions, but they were also brought on board to be raped and to be used as sexual tools for the sailors. So there's never been a time in the entire United States history where Black women have not been violently assaulted both by the state as well as individuals. From that moment forward, Black women have, and, and in the moments leading up to that, 
through kidnapping from the African continent through the Middle Passage, Black women have experienced all of the same forms of state-sponsored violence, state-sanctioned violence, and state violence as Black men and Black people of all genders, and additionally have been subject to gender-specific forms of state violence through certainly systematic and structural rape that propped up the institution of chattel slavery and allowed it to continue after the transatlantic slave trade was shut down, and also policing of uh, parenting and pregnancy and motherhood and violent separation from children in, in many respects. I read a statistic recently that a quarter of people of African descent were separated from a parent or a child during the period after the transatlantic slave trade had stopped and the internal domestic slave trade had started or had intensified. I think another um, thing that many of us don't think about when we think about state-sponsored violence is that Black women definitely experience lynching, often targeted for standing up for themselves or owning property or being associated with members of Black communities who were being targeted, but that that also, the lynching very often involved rape as well as physical and sexual violence and mutilation. After five years of exhaustive research and interviews with local historians and descendants of lynching victims, the Equal Justice Initiative found white Southerners lynched nearly 4,000 Black men and women and children between 1877 and 1950. I'm listening to these people who are talking about when violence started. No, violence against Black people and against Black women, the whole breeding program when transatlantic slavery was outlawed, Americans came up with the idea, okay, well, we don't have to steal people from Africa. We can just make chattel, right? We can breed people in order to satisfy our needs. And so Black women were routinely raped not only by slave owners, but by overseers, and then forcibly required to enter into relationships with other slaves that the slave owner thought had good properties and could produce more better developed, brand new piece of chattel through forced pregnancy. And I just want to lift up the scholarship of Sarah Haley, Talitha LaFloria, and others who show that the criminal punishment system was also set up and the criminalization of Black women in that context deliberately to also regain control over the economic and reproductive labor of Black women. So that Black women, as soon as they left the houses of white people in droves, were re-enslaved through arrests, essentially for being outside on the street, for being too loud, for being out at night, for alleged public drunkenness, for alleged theft, for their children being too loud, supposedly, any excuse to put them back into domestic servitude and then to be kept in there through ongoing criminalization. Both Haley and LaFuria talk about how Black women who were in domestic servitude would be charged with theft for eating leftovers or for sitting at the employer's table or perhaps taking something because they were being paid too little and they needed to support their families, but often for no reason at all. As the term of their indentured servitude was ending, the people who were indenturing them would then call the police and say, oh, that she stole food or she stole something, whether it was true or not, and then the period of indentured servitude would start over again. That kind of criminalization in terms of Black women's presence in public, as well as criminalization around alleged fraud and theft, as we all know, sort of in the context of the welfare queen and so forth, continues to the present and definitely informs the ways in which police interact with Black women and the sites, locations, and forms of state violence that Black women experience. 
the U.S. locks more people up than any other country. More than 2 million Americans are in jails or prisons here, and more than 200,000 of those 200, prisoners are, those female. are female. And nearly 30% of all incarcerated women worldwide are in the United States. And the number of women in U.S. prisons has risen more than 700% in the last 40 years. My understanding is there's more police interactions with men than there are of women. There are 10 million arrests every year, and a quarter of those arrests are of women. There's not a, a total number of stops every year, but certainly the total number of arrests every year is of women is, is a quarter, and Black women make up the majority of that. So certainly the number might be smaller, at least in terms of arrests, but the racial disparities are the same. So similarly, when we were talking about stop and frisk in New York City... Since 2002, the police department has conducted over 5 million stops and frisks. The vast majority of those stopped have been black and Latino. According to the police department's own reports, nearly 9 out of 10 New Yorkers stopped and frisked have been innocent. Racial disparities among stops of women were identical to the racial disparities among stops of men. But we continue to talk about stop and frisk as something that was uniquely or exclusively targeting black and brown men who were also presumed to be straight and not trans, right? And in fact, queer and trans black men were also experiencing unique forms of stop and frisk. The New York City Anti-Violence Project knows that stop and frisk and police profiling and racial profiling has always been an LGBT issue. It continues to be an LGBT issue. In 2011, what we found that 32% of LGBT people who reported violence reported incidents of police misconduct, including false arrest, excessive force, entrapment, and police raids. We know that transgender people, transgender people of color, and LGBTQ youth of color experience this violence at the most risk. Another data point that many people aren't familiar with is that Black women are the demographic group that are most likely to be killed by police when unarmed of any demographic group. And so, for instance, the Breonna Taylor story is very much in the news right now. Across this country, they are shouting another name as well. Breonna Taylor, Breonna who Taylor, would have turned 27 today. 27 today. Back in March, she was shot eight times, eight times, eight times while she slept in her bed in Louisville. The protesters across this country demanding, 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 say her name. Say her name. Back in March, three plainclothes Louisville police officers stormed Brianna's home, executing a no-knock search, no search warrant. Family lawyers say Brianna's boyfriend, a licensed gun owner, fired a shot, fired a shot. Fearing, intruders. fearing intruders. The officers fired 20 rounds in return, 20 rounds in return killing, Brianna. killing Brianna. That kind of situation where black women are killed uh, in the context of a no-knock warrant during a drug raid is sadly very common. I can name off the top of my head women who have died that way. Um, Tarika Wilson, Katherine Johnson, Alberta Spruill, Ayanna Stanley Jones. Seven-year-old Ayanna Jones spent her last night alive watching TV on the couch with her grandmother. They woke to a blinding light, an explosion, and the sound of a single gunshot that killed the child. This is what we know. Katherine Johnson, 92 years old when she was killed. Police went to her home based on falsified paperwork claiming there were drugs inside. When Johnston didn't answer the officer's knock at the door, they then broke in. Frightened by the noise, she opened fire and the officers shot back, killing her. Those kinds of killings, as well as sort of the ways in which black women are policed in public spaces that can lead to physical violence, sexual violence, and fatal violence, are things that people are not necessarily seeing happen in the same way. 
And I think part of it is because the way that our understanding of state violence has been shaped historically and in the present is around the experiences of Black men who are assumed to not be queer or trans. And the stories that have shaped our understanding of gender-based violence have to do with white women and domestic violence or sexual assault. And that leaves Black women who experience disproportionate rates of both kinds of violence completely out of our understanding of the narratives and actually what we see as violence. And so I think that, again, showed up in a really stark and extreme way in Breonna Taylor's case, where recently they produced a police report that said there had been no injuries to a woman who was gunned down in her bed and died in a hail of 11 bullets, eight of which struck her. We begin today with shocking news out of Louisville. Local police have released a nearly blank incident, blank incident report stemming from the night Breonna Taylor was fatally shot in her own apartment by police, despite the fact that the 26-year-old EMT was shot at least eight times during eight the no-knock search in March. Eight times. Yesterday's report listed Taylor's injuries as none. That's just an extreme example of we're literally not seeing violence against Black women and that it's being deliberately erased from official narratives and from media narratives and from our own storytelling about what state violence looks like. I went back and did a quick search on Brianna, and I came out with a news story that says Brianna Taylor allegedly killed by the police. What? Which, which part of the event was alleged? <laughs> which part of the event was alleged? You see? But that was how ABC, national press, someone in that editorial room thought that was an appropriate headline to put for a woman who was killed in her own home in a hail of police bullets by men in plain clothes who never announced who they were. The same thing happened with the Holtzclaw's case in Oklahoma where the police officer raped the 14 black women. No national press picked that up until Vogue magazine or one of the women's magazines said, why are no press covering this? Oh, then everybody was like, oh, there's a cop beyond trial. <laughs> he raped 14 women on duty. Uh, maybe we should cover that. I was violated by a police officer. He stopped me on 50th and Lincoln for no reason whatsoever, pulled me over and bundled me and did certain things to me. I was out there alone and helpless, didn't know what to do. And in my mind, all I could think that he was going to shoot me. He was going to shoot. He was going to kill me. He was going to kill me. He did things to me that I didn't think a police officer would do. He made me perform all of sodomy sex on him. I didn't know what to do. I was so afraid. I was afraid for my life. I kept begging him, sir, please don't make me do this. Don't make me do this, sir. Please, please. You're going to shoot me. He said, I'm not going to shoot you. I said, yeah, you're going to shoot me. Yeah, the only thing me. I could see was my life flash before my eyes and the gun on, and his holster on his right side. Yeah, you're going to shoot me. And as I tried to look up at his name, I was afraid to because I said, if I know his name, I know he's going to kill me. So that I didn't do. You see, so, so this is all connected to the idea of black women uh, being unworthy of attention. So people can kill us. They can rape us, they can rape us, they can rape us, they can assault us in all kinds of ways. And no one cares 
America, America's public enemy number one, number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out, all-out, all-out offensive. So John Ehrlichman was one of the henchmen for Richard Nixon. He says the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies: the anti-war left and black people. And black people. You understand what I'm saying? Black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. You know, I don't know that originally the war on drugs was targeted necessarily at black women, but during that whole campaign to lock up as many black and brown men as they could, what the prosecutors began to discover was if you arrested their uh, wives, mothers, girlfriends, you could put pressure on the male defendants to either plead or to cooperate or whatever it was. We don't see this play out with white criminal defendants, but it was a tool that was used, and I must say Rudy Giuliani, while he was the U.S. attorney, this was a favorite tool of his in any kind of criminal case where there were black or brown defendants, it didn't even have to be a drug case, he would go after the spouses, the girlfriends, the mothers, if he could get them. And so what would happen is that if you were after a drug organization and you had somebody in mind as a defendant, if he lived with someone or was married to someone, they would try to find a way to indict the wife or the, the paramour as well. So for example, if you lived with someone who might have been dealing drugs, whether you knew or didn't know, and you answered the door, when someone came to see your husband or your lover, you became a co-conspirator. You know, I'm looking right now in my apartment at a poster that we made in 2015 with some colleagues that lists 100 black women and girls killed by police. There are five-year-olds on this list and there are 92-year-olds on this list. The 92-year-old Katherine Johnson was killed by a no-knock warrant also, as Breonna Taylor was. Uh, she was living in a neighborhood where she didn't feel very safe and uh, a neighbor had been sexually assaulted. Recently, someone had come into her home and sexually assaulted her, an elderly neighbor, and so she got a gun to protect herself because the police certainly weren't protecting her and other folks in her neighborhood. And officers showed up at her door in a very similar way as Breonna Taylor. Katherine Johnson, 92 years old when she was Breonna killed. Breonna Taylor, who would have turned 27 today. Johnston didn't answer the officer's knock at the door. They then broke Three in. Three plainclothes Louisville police officers stormed Breonna's home, executing a no-knock search warrant. Frightened by the noise, she opened fire. Fearing intruders, Breonna's boyfriend, a licensed gun owner, fired the a shot. The officers shot The back. officers fired 20 rounds in return, killing, killing Breonna. 911, Operator Harris, where is your emergency? There was no evidence that anything was going on there that had to do with drugs. It was a mistake or inattention or neglect or we don't care. We'll just barge into anyone's house uh, because we have full license to do so under this war on drugs. So they barged in with a no-knock warrant. She was terrified. She responded because she thought she was being attacked as the people in Breonna Taylor's apartment did. 
she she also had the thing that gun that she got was like some rusty kind of old thing that wasn't working right so it wasn't it wasn't really a threat it was just something that she thought might protect her for a minute um, and they gunned her down at her door so the war on drugs is definitely a primary site um, Ayanna Stanley Jones is a is a young seven year old girl who was gunned down as she slept on her couch by officers also charging in allegedly looking for someone with in full SWAT team and doing it while being filmed on camera as part of this what people have been calling out recently as copaganda all the TV shows that glorify police officers whether they're reality shows or fictional shows this was a reality show that you know for the cameras was barging into someone's house, you know, guns blazing and flashbang grenades in this very militarized, very sensational drug raid. And a seven-year-old is no longer with us as a result. Outrage in Detroit this morning after a funeral for a seven-year-old girl who was shot and killed by police in a raid on her family's home. The whole time, a reality TV crew following the police was filming right outside. This death is raising questions about how much access reality TV crews should have to law enforcement and whether they might have played a role in this incident. What I would say about the range of experiences is, you know, Frankie Perkins was choked to death on the street by officers also waging the war on drugs who claimed they thought that she had swallowed drugs and choked her until she died in an effort to recover them and there were no drugs on her or in her. And that's a story, again, that, you know, didn't kind of generate a national I can't breathe moment, right? But that happened in Chicago, I believe, in 1999. So there there was definitely precedent for that. Uh, Danette Daniels is a pregnant woman who was killed by police, also in an alleged drug transaction where there was no proof of drugs. That police violence happens, you know, when police respond to domestic violence calls or a Rosser died during a domestic violence call, you know, within seconds of the door opening. It happens people, when police are responding to mental health crises, Betty Jones was killed by police officers in Chicago called to respond to a mental health crisis. Kayla Moore was a black trans woman who also was killed by police officers in Berkeley responding to a mental health call where the people calling were looking for medical support workers for the mental health team of the Berkeley City Department. But unfortunately, the mental health team didn't operate 24 hours a day. So because they called at night and the mental health team only operated between nine and five, which is not when everybody plans their mental health crisis, the police showed up and killed her, suffocated her in her own apartment. There are so many different contexts in that, and I'm just talking about police killings, right? There are so many different contexts in which police come into contact with women, girls, trans, and gender non-conforming people where harm comes to someone who is seeking help. I think Tony McDade's case is another example where According to Tony's Facebook page, he had experienced tremendous homophobic and transphobic violence the day before. He didn't get protection. He got killed. Kiwi Herring is a black trans woman in, in Louisville who similarly had experienced just months of transphobic and homophobic violence from her neighbor, culminating in them setting a fire on her porch the night before. But when the police showed up the next day, Kiwi is the one who's dead. So I could go on. There are so many stories, and I, I think what really breaks my heart actually these days particularly is that sometimes I can't remember all the names because at this point I just know so many and so many are getting added on a daily basis and I'm getting older. It's getting harder and harder to hold them all in my mind and all the different circumstances and all the different stories and all the different qualities. I mean, I want to remember things about Kayla Moore 
that her sister has told me that aren't about how she died, but about how she lived and how she loved. I want to know more about so many people whose lives have been taken, whose stories we don't know for so many reasons. Um, so that's a glimpse at the range. It's, it's a much bigger range than even I've been able to describe. Well, tonight, a San Francisco police officer is under arrest, under arrest for sexual assault. An Arcola police officer arrested, arrested for sexual assault, sexual assault. Again. again. Two weeks ago, Hector Ruiz was arrested for allegedly pulling over a woman, then sexually then assaulting sexually her. Assaulting. A second victim a second has come victim. forward. Newly released, newly released records are giving us far more specific details, specific details about a San Diego police officer's, police officer's alleged sexual assault of a woman in 2013. The records are from an internal police investigation, and they raise questions as to why the officer was never charged. Never charged. Well, Mayor Greg Fisher called for a larger investigation of sexual assault allegations made against Brett Hankison, one of the officers involved in the shooting of Breonna, shooting of Breonna Taylor. Two women, similar stories, both start at the end of their night. The of their After night. they say they left a bar, an officer, Brett Hankinson, Brett Hankinson, offered them a ride home. We found the allegations posted on Facebook. One woman writes, One woman writes He drove me home drove in uniform in, in his marked car, his mark invited car. himself into my apartment, into my apartment and, sexually and sexually assaulted me while I was unconscious. A second woman says, he began making sexual advances towards me, rubbing my thigh, kissing my forehead, and calling me baby. Sexual violence by law enforcement is the second most frequently reported form of police misconduct after excessive force, and certainly not the second most frequently talked about. One study in 2015 looked back at a decade's worth of sort of public information and found that an officer is caught in an act of sexual misconduct, as it tends to be called, every five days on average. Yet, you know, that's not something that is part of the national conversation, even now, as we're sort of everyone's throwing out some kind of response to police violence in this moment, and none of them even touch on sexual violence by law enforcement, even though the officers who killed Breonna Taylor had previous complaints of sexual misconduct. And in my research, I've definitely found that sexual misconduct is often a precursor to physical and fatal violence, or it's a parallel. So for instance, in Invisible No More, I talk about L'Oreal Singine, who is a native woman who was killed in Arizona by police, and the officer who killed her had been accused of sexually harassing a young woman before and had also tasered a young woman in school. In court today, a Milwaukee police officer charged with sexual assault. He's the same officer at the center of a deadly shooting that led to the Sherman Park violence. There was this escalating pattern of particularly violence against women and girls that if people had tended to that, might have prevented her killing, might not have, but certainly our failure to did not prevent Breonna Taylor's killing it or, or hers. It's important for that reason. It's also important because sexual violence by law enforcement agents under international law is considered torture because there's something about being sexually violated by an agent of the state, the agent that is ostensibly, allegedly supposed to protect you from sexual violence, that has a particular psychological impact and a particular sense of there's no recourse, right? And, and it's also noting that sexual violence is a violation of your bodily integrity and your human right to privacy, safety, and dignity. And so it's something that we continue to work to lift up in organizing and in movements, that we continue to struggle to 
address in communities. It's hard to do a know your rights training around sexual violence and harassment by law enforcement because there's no like magic word that you can say, like, I don't consent to the search or am I free to go? Or, you know, this it's something that mostly when I do trainings, um, people are skill sharing on how to escape, avoid, minimize, or cheat condoms so they can have DNA evidence. Like there's really, people are sort of figuring out how to navigate the situation together and maybe avoid it or stay safer from it. And it's hard to get policy changes because, I mean, it's so obviously something that police shouldn't be doing. And yet half the police departments in the country don't even have a policy saying that law enforcement officers shouldn't be sexually harassing members of the public. It's really hard to get departments to adopt them. And it's also very difficult to track complaints. And that's something that I found through my work with the Invisible Institute is that often complaints of sexual harassment or uh, misconduct or violence are classified as something else. In large part because if they're founded, it's more difficult for an officer to keep on the force. And so it's easier to classify, for instance, extortion of sex from someone in exchange for not arresting them or criminalizing them or someone in their family and communities. Some of those get classified as, you know, consorting with a known felon. So that's the kind of form of police misconduct that'll get you, you know, a notation on your file. Maybe it might get you half a day vacation taken. It's not something that's going to result in inattention that's warranted for someone who is extorting sex from someone using the power of the badge, right? Or things get classified as improper searches when a police officer took someone into an alley and forced them to take their pants down and engaged in sexual violence against them. Also, they're often classified with this kind of innocuous sounding term of official misconduct, right? Which, you know, official misconduct is like you wore your uniform wrong or you lied about being at the doctor when you were really at home when you took a day off or whatever. That's also official misconduct. And official misconduct is often what sexual harassment, extortion, sexualized harassment, sexual voyeurism, unauthorized callbacks to survivors of violence. I think one thing that we also don't talk about in this context, I think it's really relevant to the current conversation about defunding police and investing in community-based alternatives, is that police commit sexual violence and harassment, often in contexts where they're responding to calls for help. As thousands march in cities from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., taking a stance against police brutality. The city council in Minneapolis is announcing the intent to dismantle the city's police force. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it. In the book, I talk about a series of stories where women were calling the police because their daughters were missing and cops were saying, I won't look for her unless you do X, Y, or Z or forcing them to do X, Y, or Z people calling the police because they were in a mental health crisis and being sexually assaulted and harassed, people calling police because their boyfriends were beating them and then the cop hitting on them and groping on them during this sort of private conversation where she was supposed to be sharing her side and asking for protection and extorting sex in those situations. And there's just documented statements from police officers that that's actually something they do with awareness and intention. That they say, yeah, if I'm going to show up as a knight in shining armor to save someone from a domestic violence situation, of course I'm going to ask her out on a date. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, one of them said. You know, another officer was quoted as saying, the badge gets you the pussy and the pussy gets you the badge or something like that. So it's definitely this notion that that's part of policing, that you use sexual violence to, to police and that 
you are entitled as a police officer to extort sex from people or force sex on people under threat of criminal punishment or just by force using your police car, your service weapon, your knowledge of where they live uh, that you can get from government data and information, the fact that you're the person who they're supposed to call for help when they need it, the fact that you are going to see the same person standing out on the same corner, maybe doing the same criminalized activity in the same neighborhood that they can't leave night after night. It's definitely an endemic problem. It's definitely very much under the radar. The officers target people who they know won't be believed so that when people do come forward, in combination with rape culture and certain victim blaming that we know of generally, that it's accentuated in that situation. And they'll often say, this person's drunk, this person's a drug user, this person is homeless, who are you gonna believe this person? And it works a lot of the time. So also the numbers I gave you are understood by all researchers across the board, including former law enforcement, to be a gross underestimate of the problem. In part because only a third of sexual violence survivors ever report sexual assault to anyone. It's likely much smaller for a group of people who are being sexually assaulted by the people that they're supposed to report it to. So with all this knowledge and all this chanting that we've done here today, why does it seem like so many people are ready to give up? I'm sorry, but we can't give up, and we won't give up. We owe it to black women everywhere to keep fighting. These police officers took an innocent life, a young black woman's life, and got no consequence. I'm sorry, but I'm tired of hearing this same story over and over again. The other day I was talking to my little cousin, and she told me she was afraid. I asked her what? She said the police. They don't like us. They might try to kill me if I play outside. So now I ask. What other proof is needed to realize that we need change? When the police are the ones killing us, who is left to protect us? When the police are the ones that we fear, who will make sure that we are safe? When will I, a young black woman, get the chance to feel safe? When will my black life my black will my black life matter? Matter. Well, indeed, black lives do matter. Once again, this is Manny Faces, Newsbeat's producer and host. And on behalf of the entire Newsbeat and more Creative Studios teams, we thank you for listening. Before I give you more information about the people and organizations featured in this episode, I just want to give major props to the young woman, Maxie, who you heard at the end there. She's on Twitter at A-L-I-I-S-E-E-N-M which is where we found that footage of her and her friends speaking at a march, which they organized in Houston to honor Breonna Taylor and quote, all the black women who have suffered or lost their life from police brutality. If no one wants to say her name, she continues, we will because the fight isn't over. Well, Maxie, you inspire us and we're proud to say their names and fight that fight alongside you. Now, in addition to teaching law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law, Michelle S. Jacobs frequently writes about race, crime, and law, with contributions spanning a wide list of publications. Our editors consider her 63-page paper, The Violent State, Black Women's Invisible Struggle Against Police Violence, published in the William & Mary Journal of Race, Gender, and Social Justice, a must-read. Learn more about her and her work at law.ufl.edu. A black lesbian police misconduct attorney and organizer who has engaged in extensive research, writing, litigation, organizing, and advocacy on racial profiling and police brutality against women, girls, and LGBT people of color for more than two and a half decades, 
Andrea J. Ritchie has published numerous policy reports, articles, and research studies on these subjects. Among these, in addition to the aforementioned book Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, currently available on Amazon and as a free ebook download, she's also co-author of Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, a joint report of the social justice think tank the African American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies at Columbia Law School. The latter contains profiles of more than 45 black women and girls who've either been killed or abused by the police, including those whose names I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The hashtag Say Her Name campaign is one critical way we can all help keep the spotlight on state-sponsored violence against black women and support a gender-inclusive approach to racial justice that centers all black lives equally. Use it on social media. Research it online. Contact the African American Policy Forum at aapf.org and get involved. You can read the full Say Her Name report at aapf.org slash sayhernamereport. Learn more about Andrea Ritchie and her work at andreajritchie.com. Lastly, after this outro, I'm going to play a clip from one of our Newsbeat artists that has uh, been featured in the past. His name is Osiris Anthem, representing Brooklyn, New York. He penned a powerful tribute to Breonna Taylor, which you can find on his SoundCloud page or embedded in the story that accompanies this podcast on usnewsbeat.com. So, shouts to Osiris Anthem. We're going to play a snippet of his song, Southern Breezy, in just a moment. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you feel so inclined to spread the word, share our episodes, share our website on social media, and to your friends, neighbors, supporters, and haters. Be sure to visit usnewsbeat.com. You can find out extended guests and artist bios, all of our previous episodes, and full stories accompanying each and every episode that goes in depth into the issues that we cover. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Black Lives Matter. Power to the people. Say her name. We're out. Put one up for Brianna, then go put one up for her mama. She got her life taken by savages, swear to my people won't serve that calm. Yeah, put one up for Brianna, then go put one up for her man. Try to protect her from pigs in the jam, now he got trauma, you won't understand. Nah, put one up for Brianna, then go put one up for her mama. She got her life taken by savages, swear to my people won't serve that calm. Yeah, put one up for Brianna, then go put one up for her man. Try to protect her from pigs in the jam, now he got trauma, you won't understand. Nah. R.I.P. Bree and sending my love to Miss Palmer. This isn't something you should be a part of. Losing your daughter, how could life get harder? Praying that God gives you an arm and order that pain. Tearing your heart up first, Corona. Now it gets darker, your baby ain't choose to become a martyr. Nah. What's up, Mr.